Well, good morning. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. I want to greet those of you in the room with me right now and those of you watching and joining us, whether you're in Upper House or Fitchburg, Gospel Fusion, Traditions. A big hello to those of you watching online or those listening to our podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers in our congregation, to the Spanish speakers, es un gusto tenerlos aquí con nosotros. And to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're here. Now, this is the third sermon in our series on the book of Acts. Uh, it is called, called Empowered for Mission. Uh, the basic idea is actually pretty straightforward. We, the church, not the building, the people, okay, we have been given a mission by God to help him establish his reign, his kingdom on this earth. And we are to do this mission empowered by the Holy Spirit, who's going to help us bear witness to Jesus, who is going to be the king of this kingdom of God. Now, what does that even look like? I mean, how are we supposed to do that here in Madison in 21st century? That's a hard question. And so the book of Acts is going to help us answer some of those questions. The book of Acts tells us who we are to be and what are we about. Now, last week, Pastor Matt got us going on Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is a big day. It's the day of Pentecost. It is a huge day. It is the birthday of the church. Okay? And, uh, and so it starts, starts off at, at 9 o'clock in the morning where there's like massive sound, massive wind blowing, and, and, and people are like, what the heck is going on? What's happening? And so people, they come out, and there's like, okay, now this crowd here, it's not your normal crowd in Jerusalem, right? This is a crowd that has gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, which means they are Jews who have returned to Jerusalem from all over the world. And they come together, and they are a multinational crowd, they are a multicultural crowd, they are a multilingual crowd, and standing in the middle of this ruckus is, 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 are Jesus' disciples. A bunch of former fishermen, uneducated, bumpkins from Galilee. And they're talking in all kinds of different languages. And this multinational crowd, they're like, wait, 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 I'm hearing the wonders of God declared in my own language, the language I grew up with, the language I speak when I go home. What is happening here? They're absolutely amazed. And then Pastor Matt says, at the end of that day, 3,000 people were added to their numbers, and they were baptized. So the church, at the end of her very first day of existence, is a multicultural multilingual, 3,000-person megachurch. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the very first power the Holy Spirit gives to the church is the ability to connect across cultural and language barriers. Why? Well, Pastor Matt told us last week, because it's all about God's vision for a multicultural kingdom. It was a, it, if you didn't see the talk, you got to go see it. It is a powerful talk, and it is foundational to understanding who we are as the people of God. Now, today, we're going to continue on in Acts chapter 2. In fact, it's really the same day, right? So, you know, in the morning, you got the wind and fire and, and, and people doing the United Nations thing. And then you have the afternoon, a baptism service for 3,000 people. Imagine the logistics of baptizing 3,000 people. In between. What happens in between? Well, Peter steps up and he gives a talk. 
And so this is the very first sermon in the history of the church, and it is one of the most effective sermons ever preached. 3,000 people come to know Jesus and get baptized. Like, okay, now, think about this, okay? This is before the days of television, radio. There's not even a microphone. I mean, it amazes me that Peter can talk loudly enough for 3,000 people to hear him, which means almost everybody within the sound of his voice become Christ followers that day. This talk is incredible. This talk is amazing. In fact, Luke wants you to know how amazing it is, right? Luke, Luke actually tells you the reaction of the crowd. In verse 37, when the people heard this talk, they were cut to the heart. Whoa! So this talk is the first sermon in the history of the church. The people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and then 3,000 people come to know Jesus and follow Jesus. This has to be one of the greatest talks in history. Right? I mean, today we're going to look at this talk. I am so excited. Aren't you pumped up? It's going to be awesome. Okay, some of you are chuckling. <laughs> That's because you probably read the talk, right? <laughs> let, let, let's just get real. The, the, reading of, the, the experience of reading Acts chapter 2 is, is kind of like this, right? It just starts off with a bang. Fire and wind and people coming together and there's people speaking different languages. And then Peter steps up and opens his mouth and... It's like somebody put a finger on the turntable. You all know what turntables are, right? <laughs> Ask your parents. Okay. I, I'm just going to be real. Look, here's what I'm saying. If you haven't read the, read the talk, go read it. What I'm saying is, when I read this talk, I'm going to be nice. It doesn't sound like the greatest talk ever. All right. In fact, I'm going to guess that for most of us reading this talk, our res primary response is going to be, what is he talking about? Okay? So here's the problem. And the problem is this. The Bible is not written to us, but for us. We say that here at Blackhawk all the time. And this passage, Peter's sermon, makes that point painfully clear. You see, Peter's sermon is unimaginably powerful and effective for a first century Jewish audience. And because it is so effective, it is almost incomprehensible to a 21st century Madisonian audience. Now, it would take me about three hours to unpack everything in Peter's sermon. I don't have time for that. So I'm going to boil it down, boil it down to its essence. And I'm going to do that because we need to understand Peter. Because what Peter has to say is critical for our self-understanding as the church, as the people of God. In fact, it is the first sermon in church history for a reason. And if we don't understand the sermon, we are not going to be able to understand the rest of the book of Acts. So I'm going to ask you to hang with me, okay? I'm going to explain a concept that is very familiar to first century Jews and almost completely unfamiliar to 21st century Madisonians. And that concept is called the Day of the Lord. Peter actually brings it up in, in Acts 2, verse 20. He actually mentions it. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet named Joel, and it reads like this, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So Peter brings up day of the Lord right at the beginning, but his entire sermon is really about the coming of the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? All right, very brief um, history of the Jewish people. So, so the stage is a timeline, okay? So 2000 BC, I'm Abraham. 
Now, you know Abraham, father of three world religions. God calls Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to use you to bless the world. Okay. 1,000 years later, it's about 1,000 BC right here, Abraham's descendants, they form a kingdom called Israel, and they, they're, they're situated in a place that we call today Palestine. So you have King David, King Solomon, building the temple, that whole thing. 500 years later, 500 BC, the kingdom is gone, wiped out. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. So other kingdoms invaded, and the people of God are scattered across the nations. And by the time you get to one first century, when you get to first century, there's no place in the world where the Jewish people have actual political power. Some of them live in their old homeland, but most of them are scattered across the known world. And they live under the domination of foreign empires, like first the Babylonians, and then the, then the, then the, uh, um, the Persians, and then the Greeks, and finally the Roman Empire. Now, for a first century Jew, there is something deeply offensive about this situation. For them, the world is upside down. Now, why is that? Well, we need to get into the mindset of a first century Jew. Okay, so, we are the people of God. We are chosen by God, the creator God of the universe. We know the true God, and everybody else around, all these foreign empires, these Gentile empires, they don't know God. What they worship is idols. They worship idols. They're, 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 they're gods who are not true gods. And they're immoral. We know the true God. Our God doesn't want this Im these immoral pagan empires to be running the world. No, 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 no. God chose our ancestors, Abraham, to form a kingdom that's going to help the world embrace God's reign, God's rule. So we're supposed to be in charge. Well, what happened? Well, we messed up. We messed up, and we lost our kingdom, and now we're spread out all over the world. But there's hope. You see, our God sent prophets. They come, they tell us, a day is coming, a glorious day is coming when God is gonna set the world to rights. God is gonna turn the world right side up. That day is coming, we're waiting, and that day is called the day of the Lord. This line right here is a, line, a timeline of human history. The Old Testament prophets see world, the human history is divided to two stages. There is the former days. This age, you have the reign of the Gentile empires. You have the kingdoms of this world running, over the, running the world, and they're dominating the people of God. But a day is coming. Okay. The final age of the world is coming, in which God is going to establish his reign on earth, and the power of heaven will be unleashed on earth. And the beginning of that final age, that day right there, is called the day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. And what happens on this day of the Lord? Well, you see the political dimension immediately. There's going to be the overthrow of the Gentile empires. All right, these kingdoms of the earth, they're going to fade away. They're going to be tossed over. And what you have is God and or his Messiah. He, they're going to rule this earth. Now, the Old Testament prophets are a little unclear. Whether it's God going to be king, ruling directly over earth, or he's going to use a human Messiah. It's a little unclear. Okay. But, but people usually think about the political aspect of the day of Yahweh, and, and they're missing the big stuff. 
Okay? Because the day of Yahweh is not just about changing who's in charge, it's actually a fundamental reordering of human society and God-human relationship. Look at this. Outpouring of the Spirit upon every one of God's people. That's found in Jewel chapter 2. Okay, now we think, oh, Holy Spirit poured out on everyone. That's cool. I get the Holy Spirit. It's kind of nice. We don't get how big a deal this is. Okay, you got to understand, if God is the king, if God is the emperor, and if everybody has the Holy Spirit, everybody is now connected with God, with the king. Okay, that is a massive flattening of hierarchy because everybody has close proximity to power and authority. Massive flattening of hierarchy in the final age. Okay? So every social structure, every social hierarchy called into question, whether it's family, economic, military, political, they're all up for grabs. And if you toss in there the resurrection of the dead, plus God's people reigning over the whole world, and what you get is a day that is a cataclysmic change in human history, where the power of heaven is poured out and unleashed on earth, creating new ways of being human and complete restructure of human society. So, rethink everything. That's the day of the Lord. And that's what the first century Jews are waiting for. They don't have the power to pull this off. They're waiting for God to turn the world right side up. And so on that day of Pentecost in the first century, Peter steps up before a crowd of Jews from all around the world. And he says... The day of the Lord has come. Can you imagine what that feels to his crowd? Can you imagine what it must have felt like? Now, Peter's sermon is remarkably simple. Okay? In, in listicle style, it would be three reasons why the, the day of the Lord is here. Reason number one, if you look down, if you have your Bible, scan down from verse 14 to verse 21. He basically quotes... Joel chapter 2, verse 20 and 29. The day of the Lord is coming, and there is an outpouring the Holy Spirit upon every one of God's people. Right? The Holy Spirit has come. And he says, look. Look around, people. Look around, people. You've got a bunch of Galilean fishermen who are speaking foreign languages. If that's not a sign that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on anybody, what is? The day of the Lord is here. Reason number two, if you scan down to from verse 22 to 32, that passage, the, the, the argument is a little complicated, it's a little convoluted, but the basic gist is very simple. Jesus' death and resurrection marks him off as the Messiah of the new kingdom of God. And that's a double whammy right there because you get the Messiah and then you get the resurrection, all right? Marking the coming of the day of the Lord. Reason number three, Jesus' ascension into heaven means that now earth is now being ruled directly from heaven. Peter says this. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Messiah is that human king figure. Lord is that divine heavenly figure who is ruling from heaven. 
right? You know, remember what I said earlier about the Old Testament being a little unclear who's going to rule the kingdom of God. It's going to be God himself or a human Messiah. And Peter basically says, well, it's going to be a human king who is also God himself. How's that for the coming of the day of the Lord? Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Do you see it? A sermon that does nothing for us does everything for the first century Jews. For them, what they have been praying for and waiting for and dreaming about for generations has come. The day of reckoning has come. God is now showing up to turn the world right side up. The Bible is not written to us, but for us. Now, how is Peter's sermon for us? Well, Peter says the day of the Lord is here. And uh, that is as true for them as it is true for us. The day of the Lord is here. Now, questions are probably come up like, wait a minute, the day of the Lord seems to have lasted a long time. Yeah, it has. Um, now, the Old Testament prophets are a little unclear. They don't specify how long is the day of the Lord. The New Testament writers help us out a bit. So if you take a look at this, this chart down below here, okay? This chart is the New Testament understanding of human history. And, um, and by the way, this diagram here, if you can study this and fully grasp it, it'll help you understand so much of the New Testament. It's just, this is a massively important diagram, okay? But what's going on is they see now that the coming of the final age begins with Jesus' death on, on the cross, but th there's, there's this period that goes from Jesus' death on the cross all the way to his second coming, in which the kingdom of God, the final age, coexists with the kingdoms of this world. And we're right now somewhere in this period of time. And it's getting close to 2,000 years, folks. We're still in the day of the Lord. And how do we know when the day of the Lord? Because the Holy Spirit is still working among his people, transforming lives, equipping people. And Jesus still reigns in heaven over this kingdom. The day of the Lord is here. What Peter has to say is for us. Now, if we truly understand the meaning of the coming of the day of the Lord, it would blow our minds. There's so much I can talk about here. But let's start simple. What does Peter say should be our response to the coming of the day of the Lord? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. First response to the coming of the day of the Lord, repent and be baptized. Now, the Greek word for repent is metanoeo. It means to change your mind or to change the direction of your life. Now, I want to clarify something here because there's this idea out there that repent means to feel really sorry for your sins. So let me make it clear. You can feel really sorry for your sins and repent, and you can feel really sorry for your sins and not repent. Because if you didn't change the direction of your life, you actually didn't repent. Repent means to change direction. 
And what Peter says is, hey, the day of the Lord has come. Right? The, the final age has come. And God is now forming his kingdom on this earth. So you need to repent. You need to change the direction of your life. But whatever way you were going before, you need to turn around and follow Jesus and join this new kingdom. That's repent. And then be baptized. The Greek word is baptizo. It means to immerse in something or to soak something. And so baptism is a ritual that symbolizes our spiritual reality. We are immersed in Christ. We're soaked in Christ. Now here at Black Hawk, we believe that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. The moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that moment you are now one with Christ. The Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, you're part of the kingdom of God. And after that, it's time to get baptized. So a bit of a detour. We have a baptism service coming up, October 29th. By the way, totally not planned, no coordination, okay? I'm serious about this. Okay, baptism service coming up October 29th. The baptism commitment forms are due today. Go online, you can sign up there. Now, I get people asking me, hey, you know, Charles, I believe in Jesus, but do I really need to get baptized? Yes. Okay, I understand if you come from a country where if you do a public baptism here, that might affect your career or your well-being or even your life when you go back to your home country. I totally get that. Let's have a conversation. We can make arrangements. We have done that before. But for the rest of us, if you are a Christ follower and you're not yet baptized, get baptized. Now, I can give you a bunch of, bunch of reasons, but I'll give you only one that matters. Jesus commands it. And if you call yourself a Christ follower, you know, the following part, that should be the only reason that matters. So if you have questions about what is baptism or about the service itself, uh, go online. You can find out more information or you can go out to wherever site you're at and go talk to people in the connection point. They'd love to talk to you about this. All right. So the response is to repent and be baptized. And what happens to you when you repent and be baptized? What do you get? I love this passage. It's so clear. It's just so clear. It says, your sins are forgiven and you get the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Forgiveness of your sins means your relationship with God is restored. Okay? You are now together again. And, and that doesn't mean somehow, oh, I'm God's people or I'm God's friend. No, no, no. You become a child of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. This God who knows you and loves you and who wants what's best for you. And our God gives us the best that he has to offer, which is Holy Spirit. He gives us the presence of himself. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives, transforms us into the people that he created us to be, and equip us and empower us for the mission of the kingdom. All right. So what happens after the day of Pentecost? All right, you got this crowd of people, they showed up, 3,000 people, many of them not from the Jerusalem area, they're from all around the world, so they get baptized. Then what do you do? 
Well, now, if you think like, you know, if there's things like 21st century people, we'd be like, well, hey, I went to Jerusalem, it was a nice vacation. Man, that was amazing stuff I saw and heard. Great spiritual experience, got saved, got baptized. Now it's time to pack up my bags and go home and live my life. Yeah. That's not how they saw it. Let's go and look at what the first Christ followers do after the day of Pentecost. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Okay, let me just stop here because we need to remember something, something here, okay? We have a bunch of people from other countries here. Remember the crowd is a multinational crowd? So... They don't go home. They stay in Jerusalem. But, but, but that's not going to work, right? We're talking about an extended stay in a foreign country that's unplanned. You have no way to make a living. I mean, you're, you're going to run out of money. Yes, they do. They run out of money. See this? People start running out of money. So what happens? Christ followers living in the Jerusalem area, they start to sell property. They start to sell land, furniture, jewelry to support these foreigners from, from other parts of the country. What is going on here? What is going on? What's going on is that the day of the Lord has come. And God is building a community here on earth around the person of Jesus Christ. The final age in human history has come. And there's going to be a new way of being human, a new social structure, a new community. And so these first Christ followers, they decide to form what I call kingdom community. What does kingdom community look like? Number one, teaching. This community is not a feel-good time of hanging out together. It's not summer camp. It's not hanging out with my buddies and pals. No. This kingdom is a response to what God has begun to do in Jesus Christ, which means Jesus' teaching is at the center of this community. This community has a goal. It has a mission. It has beliefs and practices that define what this community is and how it's meant to be in the world. Jesus' teaching is at the center of kingdom community. Number two, breaking of bread and prayer. Kingdom community, they do breaking of bread, which is another way of saying communion or Lord's Prayer. Jesus commands communion for his followers because it is a retelling of the story of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And in this retelling, there's a chance for us to reaffirm our decision to follow Jesus, reaffirm our decision to enter into the kingdom of God. So in this new kingdom community, people are, these are people who are regularly reaffirming their decision to follow Jesus. And of course, we pray. Of course you pray. The day of the Lord is here. We're in the final age where we are one with God. We have the Holy Spirit. The creator God of the universe loves me and wants to talk to me. Of course I want to talk to him. Of course we pray. Kingdom community. Finally, Fellowship. 
Kingdom community is where people do life together. And that's because one of the first results of human rebellion against God is alienation. If you have a chance to read Genesis chapter 3, that's where it talks about human rebellion. It tells you that the moment the first humans rebel against God, we become afraid of each other. When other people rebel against God, I'm scared of you. I think you would judge me. I think you will not like me. I think if you truly see who I am and truly know me, you would want nothing to do with me. So I put up walls. I put up fronts. I curate my Instagram account. I make sure only the best pictures show on Facebook. I put a false self forward because I think you're going to judge me and condemn me. With the coming of the day of the Lord, the power of heaven is unleashed on earth. And that power, one of the primary goals of that power is to reverse the brokenness of human rebellion. And that means bringing together a community of people to know each other fully and still love each other fully. Look what happens. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You got to remember who these people are. Don't forget the beginning of chapter two, okay? Who are these people? They're not family, they're not friends. They don't know each other until the day of Pentecost. They are from different countries. They have different cultures. They have different political views. You got people listed in there from Rome. Do you think those people think about Rome differently from people who are ruled by the Roman Empire? Different political views. They speak different languages. And what are they doing? They meet every day. Now, nobody has a house that fits 3,000 people. So they go, to the, they go to a public place, the temple courts, where they get teaching and worship. And then what, then what do they do? They break into groups and go to people's homes. And they do life together. <sighs> what is going on here? These first Christ followers are creating a brand new social structure in which they're doing life with people that they have nothing in common with, no common interest, no blood relationship, nothing, except that they all have faith in Jesus Christ. And why are they doing this? Because the day of the Lord has come. 2,000 years later, we believe the day of the Lord has come. And that has implications for your social life. That may come as a surprise to some of you. You know, you think that going to church is, you know, church is someplace you attend and then you just leave. No. Following Jesus means a calling to join a kingdom community. Not some kind of pie-in-the-sky spiritual community. No, a real physical community. 
Now, some of you are thinking, Charles, wait, wait, are you saying, Charles, that, that I'm supposed to walk into a church building, meet a bunch of people I don't know, nothing in common with, no, no connection at all, and I'm supposed to open myself up to them and let them know me, and I'm supposed to get to know them and love and serve them because just because we're all Christ followers? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And that makes no sense, except the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord has come. The power of heaven has been poured out onto the earthly realm. And that means for those of us who are here at Blackhawk Church, the people you're sitting with right now, the people who are watching online right now, these are the people you are called to get to know and to be known by, to love and to be loved by. These are the people with whom you are to do life together. Now people say, man, Black Hawk Church is hard. It's so hard to get to know people. It's so big. You know, and I, I used to feel very apologetic about that. I say things like, you know, big churches aren't for everyone. And then a few years back, I started reading the book of Acts, like, like, and I'm like, wait a minute. They got 3,000 people on that very first day of the church. And if you keep reading, it only gets bigger. If you get to chapter 7, we're talking about possibly a 10,000-plus people church. How do they do it? Well... They have a large group in the court, temple courts where they do teaching and, and worship, and they break into small groups where they do life together. Now, that's one way to do kingdom community. And that's exactly what we do here at Blackhawk Church. We do gathering for worship and teaching, and then we break into groups. Groups are where we do life together. Groups are where we get to reverse the brokenness of human rebellion. Groups are where we get to take down the walls so we get to know each other and be known and to love each other and be loved. Groups are where people of different backgrounds, different ethnicity, different life experience, different political persuasion come together to show the world there's a different way of being human. Watch this video. I'm Hua. I'm from China. Four years ago, I had the opportunity to be uh, the visiting scholar at EU of Medicine. At the same time, I attend the, the service in the, at Black Hawk. Uh, I still remember the important day, uh, which is the 23rd of September 2018, that I decided to follow Jesus. And then I have the opportunity to sign up uh, the life group. I'm so happy that we are in the group that Bob and Gail host. After several gatherings that I told uh, my life group, saying that my wife was diagnosed as breast cancer, and also because of the language issue that she is hesitated to attend the, the gathering. And Bob just offered me that why not ask her be with us, and even during the gathering, she could just uh, rest on the couch with a blanket, and if she wants to sleep, then that's fine. When I talked to her um, that what my feeling in the life group, feeling the, the welcome, feeling their heart, and I just say, said to my wife that these are really loving people, so don't worry. And even though that she's still hesitant, but he, she agreed. And after that, we both never miss any single of the gatherings. After 
one or two months, I believe, that she also decided to follow Jesus. I think of my life group is my family. We share the joy, we share the frustration, we share everything. And I don't have my uh, relatives in the States, but I feel my family in the States. I think that the life group gave me the comfort, gave me love, let me relax. It's just great experience. Following Jesus means changing your social life. Following Jesus means you are called to join a kingdom community. A kingdom community where there is teaching, where there is prayer, where there is worship, where there's life together. Now here at Blackhawk Church, we have groups for you. We have life groups. We have groups for middle schoolers, for high schoolers, for 20 to 30s. We have men's community. We have encounter women's Bible study. We have mom to mom. We have senior adult ministry. We, we, have, we have care ministry. We have groups in Spanish, in Chinese. We have groups for African-Americans, for Asian-Americans. And if you're a college-age student, we have college-age ministry, but also we encourage you to check out parachurch groups like InterVarsity or Crew, Chi Alpha, Navigators. We want you to be part of a kingdom community where you get to do life together. Because the day of the Lord has come. And we are the people of the final age. Let me pray for us. Father, the day of the Lord has come. And you're in the process of turning the world right side up. And you, Jesus, you're, you're in the heavenly throne and you're ruling over our kingdom. And you're seeing us. So, well, Father, what we pray is the more power of your Holy Spirit for our church, for our community. That we form kingdom communities. We join kingdom communities. We become people who are truly known and truly know, truly love and be loved. Help us put away the boundaries, the walls, the barriers that we put up because we're so fearful that other people are gonna judge us and help us to be people who are open so people can see who we truly are and we can see them. I know that's unusual, I know that's weird, but that's the power of your spirit. And we want to see your divine power unleashed on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray.